WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. For a nation that George Washington famously labeled the great experiment in democracy, the United States has at times struggled mightily with the notion of universal suffrage. Our Constitution originally limited voting to white males over the age of 21. The franchise was withheld from African-American males until the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution were ratified after the Civil War and from women until the 19th Amendment took effect in 1920 constitutional protections notwithstanding until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 some Americans continue to confront ballot box barriers in the form of Jim Crow contrivances such as poll taxes literacy tests and so-called grandfather clauses hi I'm John Chuanis and on this week's show we'll examine the state of voting particularly here in the Hoosier State Indiana lawmakers from the State House to your house Some voting rights activists contend that Republican-controlled legislatures here and across the country are hell-bent on erecting electoral hurdles, especially for Democratic-leaning constituencies such as minorities, young people, and hourly workers with inflexible schedules that discourage in-person voting. Policymakers on the other side of the debate argue that election integrity serves as the very bedrock of our democracy and that unchecked election fraud poses an existential threat. Stringent safeguards, they say, are essential because any erosion of public trust in our electoral process could doom the great experiment. Here to weigh in on the issue are Republican Representative Timothy Wesco of Osceola, chair of the House Elections and Apportionment Committee, and the author or sponsor of several election measures making headlines this session. Democratic Representative Cherish Pryor of Indianapolis, House Minority Floor Leader, and a member of the Elections and Apportionment Committee. Brad King, co-director of the Bipartisan Indiana Election Division and a former counsel to the Indiana House and Senate Election Committees. And Julia Vaughn, executive director of Common Cause Indiana, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting open, ethical, and accountable government. Thank you all for coming and lending your expertise to this uh, discussion. I'm going to start just to set the stage, uh, sort of get every so our viewers and listeners can kind of see where everybody's coming from. I'll just go around, starting with you, Representative Wesco, and say, give me a grade, letter grade, on the current state of Indiana's electoral process in terms of a letter grade, its integrity, its, its security. And then, was the 2020 presidential election a legitimate election? Was Joe Biden duly elected? Again, I, I, that sort of sets the stage for sure. a lot of election discussions sure. these days. If you could give me a grade. And Indiana has led the nation in both voter access and election security. I would give our state an A for uh, for our elections and president biden was certified by uh, the sufficient number of secretaries of states to receive the electoral votes to be duly elected president all right church Pryor. same questions so uh i certainly think that the president president biden um is duly elected and um and hopefully everyone can um, come to an agreement uh with that the voters spoke and you know he's in the white house now um, as far as a letter grade, um, I think it's the perspective uh, that you have. Uh, if we look at um, the laws that we passed to, um, that would make it more difficult for people to vote, um, I wouldn't give us a high grade. 
But um, I do think that when we talk about the, um, the length of time that it takes for our returns to come in um, the night of the election, I certainly would give that an A. But overall, probably between a B or a C. Tough grader. All right. Brad King, you've spent years uh, looking and working in elections and, and, and with the division and in various roles in and around. Give me, the, give me your take on these same two questions. So. I, think, I think Indiana has demonstrated it's a national leader uh, that other states have followed in election matters, so I would give us overall an A. There's always room for improvement, of course, but Indiana was among the first states in the country uh, to implement vote centers, for example, which allows voters to vote anywhere that's convenient in their county, not just in a particular site in their neighborhood. And Indiana expanded its period for absentee applications to be almost a year. And so someone can apply to vote absentee in 2024, uh, beginning in December of 2023. So we've led the nation in having some reforms that expand access for voters. And the second question? You can't dodge the second, the, the second question is we're a nation governed by law. And under our law, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. All right, same questions, Julia Vaughn. Just to well, set the I give stage. us I give us an A for integrity. We don't have a problem with fraud in our elections here in Indiana. I guess give us an F for access. We have ranked in the bottom third among all states for more than a decade in terms of turnout. So I think that's telling. It is more difficult to vote here in Indiana than it is in most other states. And in terms of the legitimacy of the 2020 election, uh, Joe Biden won. Uh, that's very clear. And we need the election deniers to be quiet and move on, because that's what's really undermining uh, faith in the electoral process in our country and in Indiana. Well, now everybody knows uh, the cards are on the table. And I'm taken uh, with your various answers where we have Representative Wesco, you give the state, the state currently an A. Representative Pryor, you gave it lower marks. And yet, Representative Wesco, you're the one who is advocating new restrictions and reforms. If it's an A, and she says it's a lower grade, shouldn't she be the one that's at, calling for reforms? Or walk us through uh, why reforms are needed uh, at this point and what your, let's, let's start with uh, House Bill 1334, so which really uh, was heard in the Senate this week. Uh, for us to committee. always be adapting, especially as technology changes, as the process changes, and it's, Indiana's been a leader not just in voter ID, but also in increasing access through vote centers and allowing people to vote anywhere in their county or to vote early in person, one of the longest periods in the entire country at 28 days. And But as we move forward, this is not something that's static. We always want to be striving to be the best that we can be. And so that's why I'm always interested in, in making sure that we have the strongest laws possible so that people can have the greatest confidence possible that Indiana is doing all that we can to make sure that our elections are secure and safe and accessible to everyone. So is it fair to say that, that for instance, your motivation for authoring House Bill 1334 is not uh, a response or a counter to what you perceive to be fraud, rampant or otherwise, but rather preemptive? Preemptive, and there are cases of fraud. Every, every cycle, there are a few. Not overwhelming, but especially in relationship to absentee ballots, there are at least a sampling, and you wonder how many more are out there, and people have long questioned 
the, the legitimacy is we've had an expanded number of absentee ballots, and oftentimes here in my home county, we've got a history of four signatures. We also have a history of absentee ballots being the determinant factor in close elections. And so I think it's important to reassure people that these ballots are being completed by the those who are claiming to complete them and filling them out and sending them back, the applications. Of course, if I'm not mistaken, most of those instances re that you alluded to about forged signatures were about yes, ballot they were access. Not they were petitions where somebody needed areas. to get the Correct. X number, which is a little different from certainly ballot well, box. Well, it's a the lot sancti different, John. The sanctity it's of the ballot box. Different. Well, that's and, why I pointed it out. And but. House Bill 1334 <laughs> wouldn't do anything to address those problems that have happened in St. Joe Again, County. Again, that's, that's to get people on the ballot, uh, yeah, it, candidates. It, it's, the problem with 1334 is it overemphasizes these concerns about integrity at the detriment of easy access to mail-in ballots for voters. It inserts another step, another request for information, and many people are going to be tripped up by that request for information. So there's going to be another step in the process for county clerks as they try to administer these absentee ballot applications. So it's going to put another hurdle in place for Indiana voters, and in particular for our most vulnerable voters. Indiana already has an incredibly restrictive, one of the most restrictive vote-by-mail statutes in the country. And so overwhelmingly, the people who choose that option are elderly or disabled. Again, the least able to jump over these new hurdles. Well, let's, let's dissect a little no. bit of that for people who don't follow this. The reason you're, I'm guessing, saying it's one of the most restrictive is, unlike some states where you can just say for any reason or no right. reason at all, I want my mail-in vote. Here you have to, unless you're 65 or over, which has spurred litigation on another front, which has gone to the Seventh Circuit. We could spend probably the show just talking about that issue and, and differentiation of age and the way voters are treated. But, but now you have to give an excuse. You have to say, I'm going to definitely be out of town. I'm disabled. I'm this. I'm that. Uh, is, is, do you think, Brad, that where do you put us in terms of how stringent? Is, is there an onus now on, on the elderly, on the disabled, on the needy uh, as it exists now? Which I uh, No, John, I don't think there's an onerous burden on uh, the voters of Indiana with regard to uh, access to the absentee ballot. I don't think we can put too much emphasis on integrity because it's tied into voter confidence in the election process and that the winner of the election is duly serving in that office. Um, what we've had is a development in the last 20 years or so where the norm where most voters in Indiana vote on election day at the polls uh, is still true. Uh, roughly two-thirds did last November. Uh, but it's a big increase in the number of absentee voting from when Indiana instituted photo ID laws in 2005 the next election, 10% of the ballots that were voted were by absentee. Last November, that had more than tripled to 36%. And so we're seeing a different method being used in the election process that raises... Is that inherently raises, problematic, though? I mean, it, it, or is it, that something to celebrate? It is, that it's it, just uh, more people voting and it, more opportunities it, to it, vote? It is inherently something where we want to take safeguards because one of our bedrock principles is... We want ballots, generally, to be under bipartisan custody. And when we entrust an absentee ballot to an individual through the mail, for example, we don't have that chain of custody that we have in other situations, whether it's absentee or in person, when there's bipartisan oversight to make sure that the laws are being followed. Yeah, jump in and then 
Okay. And then I, I'm going to try to remember if I can. I follow up to that, but go ahead, Representative. So I, I think it's important to keep in mind that when we, in 2020, when we had a significant number of people voting absentee because of COVID, we didn't have any issues uh, of voter fraud. No, there were but, there were some well, issues, but very very few. Uh, uh, or absentee ballots, I should say. So we didn't, we did not have um, that issue. So I think we're, we are creating a bill to solve a problem really that doesn't exist. The biggest issue that I see um, as far as people saying, having a concern with uh, voter integrity is the person that I wanted to win didn't win. And so I don't like the outcome, so there must be something wrong with the system. Um, and I think it, when a person is duly elected, whether you like that, that person or not, you have to accept that outcome because that is the true threat to our democracy when people don't believe that a person is duly elected simply because it's a person that I don't want that was elected. And I think that is the greatest, one of the greatest threats that we have to democracy when you deny um, that a person that has been duly elected. Let me, that has Mr. Mr. Is, that a, is that a legitimate uh, uh, assessment of, of so the So House Bill 1334 is a bill that essentially takes Indiana's voter ID law that we've now had in place for 20 years, which historically uh, my Democratic colleagues and Common Cause Indiana opposed voter ID laws going back 20 years ago. Went to the took US it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. One of the first the states, Supreme Court uh, upheld it. And, and, and this is voter, taking uh, that standard uh, that we have for in-person voting, either by absentee or in-person voting on Election Day, and saying let's have a uniform standard no matter how you vote you should provide an identification proving that you are who you say and you are. And just to be, you can eat, now you can provide the last four digits, I guess if you want to, of your Social Security. This would require that or, what, or a your government issued license ID, number, uh, or a, a student, copy student of ID, your... uh, tribal issued ID. Right. Uh, it's not passport. all of the above. It's uh, provide whichever is most convenient to you and we'll match that with voter registration. Does it have to match with what you, there, there are states, not here, but there have been controversies in other states that did this where essentially there was sort of a gotcha because if you provided one form of identification, you know, when you registered, right? But then came back uh, ten years later and said, "I don't remember if I did my driver's yeah. license or." And, and that's why the bill dang, takes that into account. We're not in any so in any way wanting to reject absentee ballot applications, and so the bill outlines procedures that the clerk's office would then take to contact the voter, inform them that they didn't have a match, and and get the information that they need, and allow them to resubmit an application to get the absentee ballot. And as Brad mentioned earlier. We have a, an enormous period of time that you can begin that process, applying for an absentee ballot that you can follow through and get. So the objective here is not to diminish absentee voting by mail. It is not to uh, reject absentee ballot applications. It's simply to ensure that the person casting the ballot is the person they say they are. Well, but the problem is that this all happens. Most people don't submit their application for an absentee ballot months before the election. They do it a few weeks. And the clock starts ticking, and there are strict deadlines. So our concern is, for example, I have no, the state has no number on file for me. I've never given them my driver's license number or the last four. So they assigned me a random number. So any number I submit is not going to match, automatically kicking what it out. What if you submit that 
I don't know, know it. I don't know it. It was assigned to me randomly. So I would have to call, you again, to another step. I would have to call the county clerk, find out what my number is before I could complete the application. So again, another hurdle. And all of this happens in a very truncated period of time. So people will be disenfranchised simply because the clock ran whereas out. Whereas you might be comfortable moving through the landmines or navigating the bureaucracy. Right. I can Others do it, and I will do it. But a senior citizen, yeah. it's going to be much more difficult for them. Senior citizens, people who are disabled, um, and, and the people in military, in the military who are overseas, if they submit their application and they don't have the information, crunch time, how are they going to be able to vote? I think they're, you know, again, I think we're we're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist, what we should be focused on is how do we increase the number of people that come out and vote. We have some of the lowest participation uh, for people who come to the polls and votes. How do we increase those numbers? That's what we should be focusing on and not putting hurdles in place that's going to disenfranchise people and seniors are some of the people who vote consistently all the time and so it's going to be very difficult for those people to try to get try to figure out if they have a number what is that number trying to find you know call in the clerk's office if they could find the clerk's office number and get in, in contact so with that person and get in the information 99 percent of people it's a driver's license number or the last four of their social security number so there's one percent that have this unique identifying number and I've talked to seniors, and seniors don't uh, have, this is not an obstacle for them. These are the same arguments we heard 20 years ago. Well, people aren't going to have a photo ID, and they can't get a photo ID, and this is going to not allow some people to vote. And that didn't turn out to be the case at all. So it, this, these are the same arguments there. This, I don't see this at all as an obstacle to seniors to vote. I want as many seniors to vote as possibly can. And I, this is just assuring them that the votes that are being cast absentee by mail are coming from the people who are the are say, who they, they are the, who they say they are. And the, and the other thing people could do is photocopy, right? right. So, although that raises the other issue where access to photocopy, easy access Which to Which is why we provide the options. You we can have the provide a photocopy of your photo identification or just your last and four social security all be number done, or driver's license. It has to be done in person or uh, through an in-person Ink on paper mail, or I mean, uh, the application, application is submitted it's through not mail. On, not online. There's not an online. There is uh, an online process, an on but that already requires that you submit your driver's license number or the last four years social security number. So we already, if you request an absentee ballot online, we already require this. So it's, again, making that standard uniform. Well, Brad well, King, what about this 1%? As Tim Wesco suggests, that might fall into the. Well, I got to challenge that number to begin with. I'd right, like you challenge to see, that number, then I'd, I'm I'd like to ask see him the study the that you base that on because I, I don't think that's accurate. Um, I, I believe it is more. It's essentially. One I mean, percent could decide an election, right? If it's the well, be, theoretically, if and if these people, there, is there, it a legitimate hurdle that that has to be overcome? I don't think it's a significant hurdle. Um, when uh, when hurdle. the when when. Uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts was engaged in oral argument on Indiana's photo ID law. He said, I'm from Indiana. I know how far it takes to, to get to the county seat to produce an ID if you forgot it on Election Day. This is not an onerous burden uh, on the people of Indiana in that context. And I think he's exactly right. Um, there's some expenditure of time and effort that every voter has to make. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of being onerous or 
being unconstitutional because you have to take some affirmative step to cast your ballot. Church Pryor, what concerns you more, the notion of sort of the the checking of the the paperwork, if you will, and the number comparisons, or another aspect of of the the legislation which would prevent any government agency from essentially doing an unsolicited mass mailing, I guess, for lack of a better term. There are some uh, secretaries of state offices across the country or BMV, I don't know, any number of agencies that just sort of, that's standard operating procedure. They go out and and whether you ask for it or not, uh, and that would be forbidden. Is that which is is what part of this seems to be more troubling to you? Uh, I can't say that one is more troubling than the other. I, I just I think the bill overall is is troubling. So um, I think they all uh, are equal weighted because they're all creating additional hurdles for people um, to try to vote or getting access to the ballot. Um, to vote, and that and that concerns me, and I think that con- should concern all of us. Again, when we have very low numbers of turnout, um, if we can find a way or we can be creative in in making sure that people get the ballots and they're able to vote, um, whether it's absentee or on the day of election, those are steps that we need to be taking. We should not be happy that we're at the bottom. When we look at the number of people that are participating in the, in the democratic process, we did have a record year in the last presidential election for us. It just didn't. But, it, but you know what? But, uh, I would say it is been a record year for us. I, uh, but we should right. be happy that it's a record year. We should be higher. Right, but 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 which brings up the point: the turnout is is a measure, but it's not necessarily the best measure of access to the election process. What what drives turnout is when there's enthusiasm either for or against a particular candidate or about a particular issue, such as a referendum to raise taxes uh, to fund a government project. Uh, Those are the sorts of things that motivate individuals uh, to take time to exercise their right to vote. Uh, It's easy for us who are immersed in the election and political process to uh, not appreciate that uh, voters have a large number of personal and family responsibilities, and they have to take time uh, to make it a priority to cast their vote. And they may not be motivated in a particular election when there's not a candidate or an issue that galvanizes them to vote. I think voter turnout's a really interesting question because there are a lot of factors that that drive turnout one way or the other. Turnout in my district is generally lower than other districts around the state. One of the reasons for that is I have a high percentage of Amish population and they don't believe in voting. So they don't vote. It's not an access issue at all. It's just a cultural issue where they don't they don't believe in voting in that respect. In other respects, when people get really upset, they get motivated to show up and vote. When they're not upset and they're generally happy with things and how things are going, sometimes uh, that impacts how how much people are motivated to get out and vote. So there's a, access is is I don't I don't think it's an access issue. There's cultural things, and I want more people to vote and want more people to get out there and be engaged in the process and the issue, but I don't think it has anything to do with access. We've got 28 days of early voting in person. We've got uh, vote centers where you can vote anywhere in the county. You've got the ability to vote absentee by mail if you're not going to be in town or if you're not able to get to the polling place on election day. So I don't think there's a direct correlation. 
And well, let me agree with Representative Wesco and Brad uh, for once today, uh, and that is it's complicated. Turnout is definitely complicated, and the lack of competition, you talk about interest, um, that's directly uh, related to gerrymandering in our state and the lack of competition instance, at both the congressional That's why 88 of our counties, which lines have been around for 100 years, there's no competition. There's no competition in our congressional delegation. There's very little competition in the state well, legislature. I mean, our, if, but maybe that's the art of the map. But the map. it is difficult but to sometimes recruit issues, because of the, the ability to have a streamlined process to get your vote by mail, the ability to um, not have to fill out a lot of information. Those are things that when you, sure, one or two of those isn't a big obstacle, but when you stack several of those on top of each other, which we do here in Indiana, then it becomes an obstacle. So it's a complicated problem, but the problem is the Indiana General Assembly is only going one way, and that is to make voting more restrictive in Indiana. We should have the most inclusive election process in the country. We're moving away from that. Is this, if you get this bill enacted, is that going to be it for a while? Or I guess we already sort of stipulated that it's a, it's never a finished product because of changing technology and so I forth. I think it's really important. Is there something else lurking, a next step to, to, uh, to uh, ensure the... the uh, it's important Integrity. to create some stability, especially as we come into a blockbuster election year next year. So I, I don't anticipate major changes beyond this coming into the 2024 election cycle. But there will always be issues and questions that come up. And I was pleased to be able to work with Brad this year on House Bill 1336, as well as his co-director, Angie Nussmeyer. And we passed out a bill with a lot of different changes, reforms, updates, and we passed it out unanimously out of our committee and out of the House. And so there, there's always changes and keeping up the, the code up to date and as workable as possible that's going on. Well, that's why we have these shows, to, to cut it through uh, the, any confusion people have and, and get these uh, thoughts and the facts out there. I appreciate it. And if blockbuster election next year, if that's, as Brad suggests, what gets people out of the polls, we should see pretty good turnout then, uh, regardless of which side of the uh, equation you're on. Thank you all for, for being here and talking about this important issue. Again, my guests have been Republican Representative Timothy Wesco of Osceola, Democratic Representative Cherish Pryor of Indianapolis, Brad King, co-director of the Indiana Election Division, and Julia Vaughn, executive director of Common Cause Indiana. Time now for our weekly conversation with Indiana lawmakers commentator Ed Feigenbaum, publisher of the newsletter Indiana Legislative Insight, part of Hanna News Service. Ed, we covered a lot during the roundtable. What didn't we cover? I think you, you want to take a step back, John, and, and look at the way that 1334 started. And sometimes that gives you a, a clue as to what the author really wanted to do with the bill. And the original bill, before he amended it in his committee, right at the very top... He being Tim Wesco, who was... Representative Wesco, yeah. right. Um, it would have, have restricted somebody from getting an absentee ballot if they could not attest to the fact that they would not be around in that period for the in-person absentee voting, like 28 days before or on Election Day. So it would have been really, really restrictive. Now, of course, you know, that gives you a, a good look at, as to why we have that committee system, bipartisan legislature or whatever, but... That was the original intent of the bill to you really. You also couldn't have highlighter back. marks on a on a ballot yeah, or uh, multiple applications sent to the same household. Yeah, these and, sorts and of the things. things, those little things, the the highlighter, for example, those are little technical kinds of things that that trip up people in in voting. 
and it's not their fault necessarily. You know, we, we talk about the, the bipartisan nature of, of the electoral system as, as we aspire to, as Representative Wesco had, had mentioned. But at the same time, you know, when you do things like require a signature from a Democratic poll worker and a Republican poll worker or a board member or whatever on an absentee ballot, for example, then you have the opportunity for something to, you know, somebody to forget to put the signature on or the signature becomes messed up and you can't read it and then the ballot doesn't get counted and where are you then? Where do you think this goes? Do we see more and more restrictions or the Brennan Center, which studies these things, uh, was saying we've, you know, dozens of states have seen doing the opposite. They've eased uh, voting restrictions and made it easier to vote. At what point, uh, I know we don't, we're not pursuing as much legislation as we did, say, a year or two ago, but yeah, I don't know when the, the pendulum is going to swing, but we, we've seen uh, situations like we did with COVID where we, we moved to um, a much more liberal system, and it worked. All right. Ed, very good. Always appreciate your insight. Like most every other state, Indiana is dealing with a mental health crisis in its schools, its prisons, and its communities. What can the General Assembly do to ease the pain on the next Indiana Lawmakers? That concludes another edition of Indiana Lawmakers. I'm John Schwannis, and on behalf of commentator Ed Feigenbaum, WFYI Public Media, and Indiana's other public broadcasting stations, I thank you for joining us, and I invite you to visit WFYI.org for more Statehouse news. Until next week, take care.